Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak. I'm here with Donald Robertson. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Josh. How are you doing? I'm very good. Uh, we were talking just before recording, and this, I want to talk about systems and systems change and what it takes. But first, I want to start with you personally, because I've not talked to... Actually, I know of one person who spoke to animals, and hmm. and... Uh, that might come up later in, in this conversation, but yours is a different one than anyone else's. Hmm. And I'm deeply intrigued. And I, I held myself back from asking before because I want to hear when everyone else hears. Mm -hmm. Can you remind me what, when I asked you what the environment meant to you, what you said or what the environment means to you? Well, um, that's, you're asking me to remember something and I'm an old guy, so I don't, uh, remember that much anymore. I like more immediate things <laughs> and then I move on. Um, the environment to me is all of us. It's, it's not something separate from the human race and it has, um, the human race is a part of it. And that's the reason why I think that we, uh, as a society, trash the planet is because we think of ourselves separately from the environment as opposed to um, being a part of the environment. And uh, that's what the First Nations people and tribal people all over the world uh, started, uh, how they lived is they lived as part of the environment. They had myths about the environment that included um, stories about what they've learned from the environment and how they learned to interact with the environment. It's the interaction, as you know, within a system that determines the um, output of the system. And so when you um, take yourself out of that and, and think of yourself as something separate, and oh, there's the environment over there um, that disassociates you with the environment. And so you don't think of it as part of you or you as part of it. And I think that's the problem. So when I think of the environment, I think of us as an included part in the environment because you can't really, no matter how hard you try, I don't believe you can actually separate yourself. And if you look at earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and um, uh, tidal waves and drought and all of that kind of stuff, that gives you a hint that you can't separate yourself no matter how much you try. So um, that's what I think of when I think of the environment. Now, wait a second, because Delta Airlines told me that nature was at the Grand Canyon and I had to fly there to, get to, to experience nature and it's not where I am. Uh -huh. Are you telling right. me that Delta Airlines is misguiding me? That it's it's uh, it's, it's separating me from something that I'm not actually separate from? Apparently, they 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 did. Um, <laughs> Delta Airlines, yeah, uh, they're a well-known uh, nature-oriented um, company. I'm sure they fly up in nature all the time in the air. Right, that's part of nature too. So um, maybe they think of themselves as that, but. Uh, yeah, that's the problem is everybody points it has a, a direction to point. Oh, over there is the environment or this is the environment or whatever. We're all part of it. Doesn't matter whether we believe it or not. We are. Wait a minute. If nature is right here where I am, mm -hmm. you mean I can't litter 
because it's, if it's not nature, then I can I can pollute, and it's not actually polluting nature. Uh-huh. Well, you know, as George Carlin said, uh, the planet is a self-correcting system, and uh, you know, his belief, Sir Ken Robinson's belief, and many other people's beliefs were that um, it didn't really matter too much what we do; the planet will self-correct. And once we're gone, it will cover up or get rid of what we did and continue on as the planet. And that's, uh, again, that's what my point is, is that we should look as if we are part of the planet and the planet is part of us. And we're not um, separate from, we're not just happened to have been dropped out of the sky and live here. Uh, we came from this planet and as uh, Joseph Marshall uh, in his books, uh, Lakota author, in his book says we will all return to the planet one way or another. So um, to think of us as something different is just it's um, anti-systemic thinking. And uh, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, if you litter right now, you're littering the planet. <laughs> oh, darn. Uh, I guess I... I guess I won't get in that internal combustion engine view. I guess I won't get in that car that I was thinking about and driving around. And it's been a while since you flew on Delta Airlines, I bet. I'm trying to think of what airline I flew. It might have been Delta. So that was 2016. So I'm coming up on, oh, man, that's interesting. That time. So for those who don't know, I just published an article in Time about how I'm now I'm about five and a half. No, five and breathing on six months disconnected from the grid. And I wrote an article in Time about it. And I looked up Time Magazine. Turns out their first issue was May, March 2023. So they're about to hit their 100th anniversary. And they've just hit their stride by publishing me. Wow. But March 2023 will also, that'll be, I think, starting my seventh year of since flying. And so a coincidence, maybe I'll see mm-hmm. if I can do something together with them. Because uh, I'm sure they're just sitting there waiting for like, what's Josh got to say for yeah. 100th anniversary? <laughs> So I'm not sure if that was Delta. It might have been. But yeah, it's been since March 2016 since I flew. Wow. Um, and I wanted to – well, all right, joking aside about about um, being separate from the environment and so forth, I, I want to get a picture of you. When, so when, you're, when you think of yourself in nature, of course you're in nature right now in a certain sense, but I think there's – are there times when you, when you think of yourself in nature, are there any um, images that come to mind or experiences in your life that are particularly salient? When I think of myself in nature um, is when I'm not inside a building. And even though technically yeah, it's, you know, we're all part of the, the system. Um, my m- most happy times are when I'm in a park or in a forest or in a, you know, uh, somewhere where I'm with uh, walking my dog, for instance, or I'm with my wife and we're taking a walk or we're enjoying more of the inputs of nature than you enjoy when you're inside of a house. And when you're inside of a house, if you have a window open or you have a curtain drawn uh, open, you can see or feel the outside, but you can't get as many inputs as if you're actually out in it. And so those inputs cause the interaction that um, I feel when I'm in those uh, situations where I can um, see a hummingbird or see a, 
butterfly and behind it is the Mississippi River. Um, you know, something so small and so big kind of juxtaposed to um, each other. But, um, you know, that's the way I think about the way I feel when I'm out in nature is I feel more connected to the world. And, um, you know, I, I worked in a building um, for 30 years that was uh, because of security clearances and stuff had no windows. And so every time you got a break or something, you took a walk outside, even though it might have been on a parade ground or on a sidewalk, you simply took a break and got outside. So um, I that's sensitized me to the inputs that I get when I'm outside, um, more um, interacting directly with nature. Taught you the value of it experientially? Yeah, I mean, it, when you it's like everything else. When you go without something, you can, you really miss it if you've seen it. And um, you know, when you look at people who are blind or or deaf or um, uh, have a, a handicap, their other senses start to take over and try to compensate for the lost sense that they have. And um, you know, people like that can actually, I think interact with nature on a higher plane than I do. So uh, that's interesting. Don't it always seem to go? You don't know what you got till it's gone. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There you go. <laughs> Those words kind of, when you hear the song, you know, they pay paradise and put up a parking lot. I guess they make sense. They do make sense in the song, but they make a lot more sense on reflection. Like when you experience the loss of mm -hmm. nature, mm -hmm. at least in my experience. Mm -hmm. And, so I wanted to get back to your experience with nature because it's tempting. People who listen to the first episode, it's tempting to say, okay, what are his results? But I always want to come back to, it's very easy to get to action without meaning. And most people, you know, if you say avoid straws, people are like, sure, whatever. Uh, sure, I'll do that. But I, this, the Spodic method is really about intrinsic motivation. And one mm -hmm. of the, probably the greatest discovery of this podcast was not that leadership can be applied to sustainability, which is what I thought at the beginning, but that everyone has an answer that's deeply meaningful on what does the environment mean to you. And therefore, everyone has deep intrinsic motivations. They may be shoved down and society and our culture may be saying they're worthless and they may have forgotten them, mm -hmm. but they're there. And I mean, my conclusion is that they're, we're wired in. I mean, the, it's... I don't think people have to guess very much. Like, why do we like a green tree under blue sky with a bubbling brook or, you know, a beautiful sunset? It's, mm -hmm. it would be crazy if, if situations like that made us fearful and anxious and, you know, a lion chasing after us made us happy. <laughs> it, and so when we, if we simply tell people everything's going to fall apart, Bangladesh is going to be underwater if you don't act, that's extrinsic. Except for people, in, unless you're from Bangladesh or mm -hmm. in Bangladesh. Right. But even then, that's about some predicted future that we haven't experienced yet. But that experience is really there. When you're in, so you just you said, I think, calming and connected. Can you name some other emotions there? Um, joy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, 
pride that I'm able to sense the interaction with nature. Um, you know, sometimes, and it's different inputs. Sometimes it's leaves rustling in the wind that kind of make a little bit of music. Um, uh, it's sometimes it's just the quiet and the stillness uh, that's very calming. Um, but if you don't get out there, you don't experience it. And when you're in your house, you can experience, as I said, some instances of nature. When I take my dog out at night, um, uh, I can see the planets. You know, that's still all part of the system. So that gives me joy to see Jupiter and Mars and uh, Cirrus and different uh, stars and planets. It gives me a feeling of connectedness uh, just from the interaction of those inputs of visually being able to see them and enjoy the night sky. Um, so it's, it's really helpful to me as in, as a, in a mature sense, it, I believe that the more interaction I have with nature, the more mature I become. And, um, that's simply a personal observation. Others might not think the same way, but, uh, that's what I feel. And so I feel that because of those interactions and that makes me happy and calm. You picked a few things that when you said them, you talked about the leaves rustling and you talked about the hummingbirds and immediately the sounds were in when I hummingbirds have, mm -hmm. you know, the sound I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And I was just right there when you said it. So these were very visceral things you brought up and, when you talk about seeing the planets here in New York City, we can see the sun, the moon, <laughs> occasionally a planet or two, uh -huh. and that's about it. And when you talked about the maturity, I was thinking, so why can't I see them? Well, there's pollution of of you know particulate stuff in the air, and there's Times Square and everything that 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 goes along with that. And I think of if so if seeing. The Milky Way creates maturity and comes of, perhaps comes of a maturity, not a human maturity, but some, I don't know. There's something, what, what does Times Square create? Where does it come from by contrast? Well, I, uh, <laughs> for me, it's chaos. Uh, you know, as villages grew into towns and cities and they initially villages uh, with tribal people were mobile and they took their lodges up you know down and and moved along and put them back up and then took them down after a while and moved them as that uh, became more permanent structures where they weren't moving around uh, because of agriculture um, and uh animal husbandry and things like that, um, they lost, we started to lose the connection with the environment, with the environment that we're in. And um, seeing meteorites and comets at night or um, uh, listening to leaves rustle or listening to the sounds of animals 
um, became less and less important in our lives because we were distracted by the need for agriculture and other uh, endeavors. And, uh, you know, people might say, well, how do you, how can you live without agriculture? Well, agriculture, the word agriculture means, and it, to me, it means an intent to grow something in a, um, a situation where it's not natural. So it's not natural to have a field of corn just pop up, you know, and acres and acres and acres. It, it's not natural. It's man-made. While the corn is not man-made, the field and the sowing of the seeds and the um, agricultural process is man-made. In nature, when you're a hunter or a gatherer, you look at plants and you see what plants are growing near other plants and whether you can eat some of those and, and not eat others. And you see animals that, um, you know, you start to understand the signs and uh, what the animals do and how they, you know, if a deer or something lays down in a grass, what kind of a impression it makes and things like that. And we lose all that stuff. And we, we've lost all that stuff because it's no longer important to us because we have uh, these other things available in, in mass quantities in the most most part of the world. So I think that that lack of interconnection um, is caused by this distractive and destructive process of trying to feed an overpopulated world. And uh, and that world can be global or it can be local, uh, just in your area. And so um, that's, I think, one of the um, unfortunate outcomes of, of our progress as a human race. Um, I was going to mention something else uh, quickly about being out in the environment. I think it's too bad that a lot of people think that in order to go out and enjoy the environment, you have to have a something that runs by an internal combustion engine. And um, I think that um, not only aside from the pollution part, but there's all kinds of pollution. There's light pollution. There's noise pollution. There's um, air pollution. I mean, there's all kind of water pollution. All of that happens when you go out and feel like a forest is a plaything for you to take advantage of and run your four by four or whatever you're you're working. Um, that's just kind of the way I think. Last time when we were, so I'd like to uh, with the in the spodic method, I'd like to evoke this to bring people to this to this appreciation and have it forefront. So last time I, and there's so many things that you said that I wanted to follow up on, but I'm going to come back to last time I invited you to think of something to do to act on those feelings in contrast to how are you going to save the world? You know, if, we, if you don't act, then, mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, government's cor corporate, anyway, but I invited you to think of something to do to act on those, those feelings, that meaning, that purpose. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what you came up with? Yeah, I wanted to see a wolf in nature and I have 
unfortunately have not been able to do that. How, so what has your experience been? Have you not gotten to try or have you not gotten, you, have you gone out and haven't seen one or? I've not gotten the opportunity to try, um, in Missouri, there are no wolves and, uh, uh, I just haven't been able to get somewhere with things that have been going on. I haven't been able to get somewhere where I would have the opportunity. And those are, that's, uh, unfortunate for, for myself and probably a lot of other people, um, that would relish being able to see an animal in the wild, in its own environment, uh, not having to interact with the human race. And when, um, the Lakota, for instance, their one of their later words uh, for a wolf is sunka, um, is sunkmanitutanka, and that means a big dog. Manitou is um, currently meant means that um, it's wilderness, but initially. All it meant was there was no wilderness to tribal people. There were places where people were, and there were places where other nations were, like wolves and bears and deer and elk and, and things like that on, on this continent. Um, so uh, those, even their language, um, the original language that they had, has changed over time as they interacted with um, Europeans and as they change their thinking about some things. So, um, Sunka is dog. Uh, Tonka is big. Manitou is, is, uh, now meaning wilderness. So big dog in the wilderness meaning a wolf. Um, and when you see that progression in language, just take language, for instance, to me, that's pollution. You, you took a society that didn't think of the wolf as a, you know, the big bad wolf um, and the three little pigs or uh, red riding hood or anything like that. Um, they just thought that they were a different nation. They thought of themselves as a nation. They thought of the wolves and everything else around them as different nations. They didn't think of them. And that's when you're a part of a system, that's the way you think. And then you guide your interactions with those different parts of the system. When you're apart from the system, you think of them more in terms of what can they do to you? What can they take away from you? What can you, you become possessive. And, um, you know, tribal people possess things, but they possess things that were essential for their survival. They didn't have, like I have, uh, 10 different screwdrivers. If they needed a screwdriver, they would have one or two, you know. And so I'm part of the problem as well. And I recognize that and I try to pull myself back from those kinds of things as much as I can. And I think that this this idea of possession of land is very, very destructive. Um, I was in an, an international management class uh, when I was going for my master's and question came up about how can you tell if you have a closed society or an open society? 
And my answer to that was maybe look at the amount, the miles of fences that they have. If they're an open society, they'll have less fences than if you're a closed society because everybody wants their own thing. Everybody wants to be, you know, have their own little piece of land. And that's just, it's counterproductive and it isolates you and it takes you out of the system. Yeah, the word isolation is growing more in my use of observing how we are and how other cultures are. I don't mean other cultures like France mm -hmm. and, and Japan. I mean, other cultures like mm -hmm. tribal cultures and ones that have, the innumerable ones that existed for hundreds of thousands of years, uh, some of which still remain, although barely. If nature's everywhere, what did you anticipate the experience of seeing a wolf would, what effect would that have? I mean, probably you, you can't know until you're there, but what might you expect? Well, my, my expectation is, is that it would make me feel more connected. If, if I could treat it as another nation of beings, then it might treat me the same way. And while we may be leery of each other, we may not be afraid of each other. And that I mentioned before in the previous podcast about fear. And I think that that's, if you look at our society today, uh, worldwide and locally, um, fear is uh, one of the biggest factors in how we interact with each other. Some people who are, uh, a lot of people who are arrogant try to make other people fearful. Um, one country tries to make the other country fearful. One uh, company tries to make the other company fearful. And we've built such a society based on fear that I think we've been so distracted by that that we've forgotten that you don't have to be fearful. You can be um, aware without being afraid. And um, if we can start to get back to an awareness of each other as opposed to a fear of each other, then I think we'll be better off and we might survive a few more thousand years before the planet takes care of us. So that's... Uh, so you were... I mean, you, you don't know what would happen until you were there, but you you might experience nature, something that could be fearful, but not, and you said leery, but not fearful. And, and, and you'd explore something about how your relationship with nature could change. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, we have in my neighborhood here, we have deer that we see. Um, the other morning I took my dog outside and we had three deer in the front yard and uh, they looked at us before they took off there's that that second or two of a connection where you actually i could see their eyes and i knew that they were looking at me evaluating me about how much of a threat i was they didn't gallop off they trotted off so because they interact with humans all the time they're not quite as afraid of humans as a deer that might be in the Grand Tetons or something that they don't encounter humans all that often. 
And so it's that kind of a connection. You know, I would travel a couple thousand miles to have that one second of uh, interaction and connection with something else. Now I really want to hear how it goes after you have an interaction with the wolf. Or is it still on the on the plate for? It it will always be on my plate, even if it were to happen tomorrow. It would still be. I would want more. Um, uh, I think that um, when I see deer, they're plentiful in this area, um, and they're not very aggressive, but um, it gives me joy. And, uh, the other night I was driving home and there were, uh, it was at night and, um, it was dark and three deer came across the road. I had my brights on, uh, intentionally to, because I knew that, you know, the chance of running, of seeing deer on the road at night, um, was pretty high. And these three deer stopped and I turned my brights off just had my regular headlights on and then they crossed the road. So there was like little connection there that they felt it was okay to go across. And so, you know, somebody else might've tried to hit them, who knows, but um, that's what value, that's what uh, I hold as a value is those kinds of interactions. So will you come back after you have an experience with a deer and, and share, I'm sorry, with a wolf and share what that experience was like? I certainly will. You will be within the top five people that know uh, if I ever get that uh, chance to do that. Listeners, you heard it here first, or you will hear it here yeah. first, or within within top six, I guess. <laughs> after. Well, I mean, you know, um, you know, if I'm uh, hopefully my wife will be with me when that happens, and. Um, you know, I'll probably tell her parents and stuff and my friend, uh, one of my friends here that's pretty close, but you'll be in top five, I'm sure. All right. I'm going to ask you a question I've been asking a lot of people, but I don't think I've asked people on this podcast. And I'll frame it. I I went to this, the supermarket and with the goal of watching 100 people looking at their carts. So this is an informal study. You know, I'm not making sure it's double blind, randomized, whatever. Right. And... I was just looking in all their carts, and it, it took more than one trip to get to 100. But every single item in every single cart was packaged. And even the produce, which itself all had stickers. So even if they didn't, it would still have some sort of something on it. But even all it, it happened mm -hmm. of those 100, and it must have been, I didn't keep track perfectly, but it was more than that. Even the produce they put in plastic bags. And I'm sure there are many who didn't. And hopefully you don't, but they the ones that they happen to. I did this calculation. So if, if everyone, um, if every meal by 8 billion people, three days, uh, three times a day, and if plastic lasts for something like a thousand years, and we produce just one piece of plastic for each meal, which is a way underestimate. And maybe let's say half the mm -hmm. people on the planet still have access to and, and have food that is not packaged. And let's say it only lasts a thousand, uh, 500 years instead of 1,000. So 4 billion times 365 times 3 times um, 500 comes out to 
two point something, 2.2 quadrillion pieces of plastic. And this is a, a, a huge underestimate. And it seems to me that there's only one number that you can multiply by two quadrillion and it gets to be a reasonable amount of pollution and that's zero. And it hit me hmm. that I'm trying, like, what's my target of polluting less? It occurs to me that at some point we've got to hit zero because if everyone's polluting, you know, some stuff can, uh, like poop and exhalation, which I don't really count as pollution, that gets re-put back into, you know, the poop becomes plants. But some stuff accumulates, PFAS mm -hmm. and, and plastics and extinctions, they accumulate. And we can't reverse an, an extinction. And we don't actually know if a thousand years is enough for plastic. So I think we got to hit zero. And then I started asking people, and here's a question, is can you imagine a world in which not one person pollutes? Or maybe hospitals and police stations and firehouses, maybe they have, there's a few places that have some backup or whatever. Can you imagine a world in which no one's polluting? And what, what would that world look like? You know, it depends. I, uh, can I imagine it? Um, I don't know that I can imagine it. I can hope for it. But I don't know what that would look like. And part of that is, as Dr. Dimming said, uh, you know, he said it's important to have operational definitions. What's your operational definition of pollution? Uh, some people might believe that excrement uh, from animals and humans um, are is pollution and other people might not. Um, if you're walking along, if you carved something out of wood and after a while it, it got decayed and, and that and you just tossed it aside in the woods, would that be pollution? If you took a gum wrapper and threw it out in the street or dumped your cigarette ashtray out in the street, is that pollution? So I think to imagine what you're asking is very hard because everybody Everybody probably has their own thoughts about what pollution is and isn't. Now, can I imagine a sustainable world? I can, because we used to have one long, long, long time ago. And um, is it possible in, in the 21st century or the 22nd or the 23rd? or the 24th to have um, a sustainable world? I hope so, but I don't know if I have the capacity to imagine what it would look like. And uh, I'd like to think I could, but this is part of the problem I've heard with all the other, with all the um, recognized conservation organizations across the world. I've never, ever seen one of them describe what a sustainable planet would look like in this day and age. And if you can't describe what it looks like in this day and age, how can you possibly describe what it could be five years or 500 years from now? So what does, to me, the more um, uh, important question is, um, what does a sustainable planet look like today? What would it be? Would everybody be acting like the way you act? 
by being off the grid, that certainly would be a step forward. But is that enough to call it a sustainable planet? I don't think, I don't know if anybody can have the answer. So, This question I've been asking people, virtually no one can imagine it. And as you point out, it, we did once live sustainably, and therefore they can't imagine what actually happened. Most people who can't imagine it, they tend to say, they imagine reverting to the Stone Age or the Dark Ages, which to them means a small cut, maybe gangrene, which would have to be amputated with no anesthesia. Their mother probably died giving birth to them. If they're 29, they got one more year to live. Which, And if they imagine some future, they think it's post-Mad Max apocalypse. And it's just people eking out whatever subsistence they can living in the mud. And leadership, a major component of leadership is, is, I mean, I've been talking a lot about role models and vision. And I think if someone's, if someone can't imagine something, or if they do imagine it, it's a hellscape. And we suggest to them, don't use straws. I think that they're, or not even don't use straws, use, don't, don't use plastic straws, but use paper ones or whatever substitutions people are using. I think that to someone who can't imagine such a future or imagines it's a hellscape, at best we may get like, okay, fine. You want me not to use straws? Okay, I won't use straws. But I know where this leads and you don't, obviously. So I'm not going to go any further. And if we give them more facts about carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere and numbers of extinctions, that won't change that in their vision, which as far as I've come across, I don't know anyone who's exposed this. But if people think this path leads to hell, then not only are they not going to follow it, they're not going to listen to people suggesting that. And I suspect that people saying, let's go this direction, also themselves can't imagine. I, I can't imagine. I've never met Leonardo DiCaprio. I would guess that he thinks it would be hell to live without you know, the things that he relies on. Or for that matter, Al Gore. I would bet that they really can't imagine. And I've been thinking about it more and more. That So some things that we discovered before the Industrial Revolution, before my working definition is, well, I'm not going to get into it, but like the Industrial Revolution post, definitely polluting. Before, there are a little bit of pollution here and there, but mostly not. In that time, we, I mean, we discovered anesthesia, vaccines, and it's the um, antibiotics, democracy, arts, culture, music, sports. There's no reason to have to give all those things up. I mean, we're not going to have the modern medical system, but we're also not going to have the modern doof system, which is, to me, one of the drivers of the medical system. Well, no matter what we do, we're not going to conquer death. I, I don't see us living forever, and that would create its own other problems. And we're not going to, it's not going to be, there's no strife, there's no disagreements. People will have lots of disagreements. But I don't think, I, I can definitely see a world in which no one pollutes and it's wonderful. You know, not without problems, definitely. I mean, the problems, you know, there's going to be war, there's going to be fighting, there's going to be famine, but it's not going to be 
the ocean filling up with things that cause cancer and birth defects and no end to that. Yeah. Um, and hopefully that would be wonderful. Um, it, when you were talking there, it reminded me of uh, St. Louis in the 1920s and 30s. Um, Shaw's Garden, which is now called the Missouri Botanical Garden, um, is in the city of St. Louis. And uh, the factories in that in in the city of St. Louis were so polluting uh, with black coal smoke and that that the botanical garden actually bought um, several hundred acres to the southwest, uh, far away from where the city was in 1920s and 1930s. And when they did that, the city took notice of that, and so they started trying to cut down on on pollution, on air pollution specifically. And it said it steadily got better, and uh, the botanical garden still owns that um, acreage out in the southwest part of uh, uh, the outskirts of St. Louis. But they didn't have to move because the pollution got better. So uh, is there still air pollution in St. Louis? Absolutely. I used to fly every day around here um, as a flight instructor. And you could see uh, after a huge cold front came through with thunderstorms and, and heavy rain and winds, you'd go up and the air was clear. Uh, within three or four days, it started to look like a bathtub ring around the area in St. Louis. So yes, there's still pollution and it's bad. Um, it In this case, it's not as prevalent as when the um, Missouri Botanical Garden made a decision to try that they were going to have to move, you know, uh, 30 miles to the southwest of the city. So can we clean things up? Yes, but that's not the problem. The problem is not cleaning the air after we pollute it. The problem is stopping the pollution before we pollute the air. And and that's why systems thinking is so important, is because everything we see, whether it's um, uh, plastic bottles floating in a river or, or a lake or the ocean, or uh, trash along the highway, those are not problems. Those are the results of problems, the system that created those. So if you want to chase after cleaning up the bottles and removing the trash and uh, cutting down on the air pollution, that's fine, but you're not affecting the system that created those in the first place. So you have to go much deeper and it's much more complicated than simply picking up plastic bottles. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't pick up plastic bottles or basically not throw them down in the first place. But again, the fact that they're here is more of a problem than somebody tossing one on the ground. The fact that we use plastic bottles. Now, can we get away without using plastic bottles? I don't know, maybe. I remember growing up, all of my shampoo and stuff like that were, were in glass bottles. 
Well, the problem with that is if you're in the shower and you knock a glass bottle off and it breaks, now you're going to cut your feet. So glass bottles aren't the answer either. either. So uh, there has to be something more complex and and we have to consider more things about how something affects the entire system than just running after something that makes us feel good. Oh, well, we picked that bottle up. Yeah, you did something good, but you didn't fix, you didn't improve the system. All you did was start to bring it back to where it should have been in the first place. And that's what systemic thinking, why it's important is to understand that much of our uh, efforts are pointed towards fixing problem results instead of fixing the problem. Can you connect what you were saying, what you just said, which I agree with, with what I, were you commenting on what I was saying before about the, the vision and, because I wasn't sure if you were commenting on, on what I just said, or if that was just a new idea, not new, but new to this conversation. No, I think, I, I think what you said led me into that. So, um, you know, it's the conversation we all need to have with each other about how can we affect things. And, you know, my, my very, very little part, let's say, for instance, of uh, not putting vegetables or fruit or something in a plastic bag at the grocery store uh, is because you proved that it could be done. And that's, that's why I think it's important to, to interact with people who are doing those things. And then you, of course, have gone much, much further than probably any of us have in trying to live, um, you know, off the grid, uh, as far as in a, in a major city. So I think it's just a conversation about your idea pinging off of my idea and my idea pinging off of your idea. And, and I think that it's all related. So if I, if I misled you, I apologize. <laughs> oh, I was just looking for the connection. Partly, I also wanted to comment that, you know, I pick up litter every day and I believe I have a systemic systems perspective. And now if, it, if I'm picking up litter, generally the stuff is toxic. It's mostly plastic. I'm just moving it from one place to another. I'm not decreasing mm-hmm. the amount. I'm not changing the system. So why do I keep doing it? There's a, a couple of reasons. One is that to me, it's like playing scales that I can't I, to master a craft. I think repetition and playing, playing scales is how we learn things. And as we learn them, we don't just go from scales to simple pieces to complex pieces without learning to express ourselves, without finding something deeper inside us. And, and mastery of a performance-based activity has some ex- emotional expressive something in there that we keep learning. I mean, I don't play music. Mm-hmm. I took lessons when I was a kid, but I, there's other things like sports and, and leadership where it's just a deeper and deeper journey all the time. Also, when I pick up litter, that reinforces not getting, like you said, not throwing it down in the first place. And my immediate thought was not buying something that could be litter in the first place before that. And before that is not wanting those things. And right. the more that I pick up litter, the more there's a, a disgust I talk about this in, in this chapter I was writing for my upcoming book that I don't want to live in a world with disgusting things around, but if there is something disgusting, I'd rather feel it than act like it's not there. 
And this makes it easier and easier not to buy things that pollute. It makes the apples that I get from the local place more and more delicious. And it makes the Apple Jacks more and more disgusting. And <laughs> I, I was listening to some woman who's, she's an expert on um, what she calls uh, processed food addiction, which I would, of course, call doof addiction, which is redundant because doof mm -hmm. is designed to be addictive. It's doof. She's just talking about doof. And she was talking about all these challenges to overcome. And I could think back to my Doritos Ben and Jerry's days when I couldn't stop myself from those things. And part of picking up litter is like, there's nothing. I mean, there's just not enough money in the world to get me to eat Doritos. It's, and picking up litter is part of that. It, it fills me with this disgust for something that I think I just will, I, I, I'd rather it weren't there, but if it's there, I want to feel it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to only feel disgust. I mean, I want to hear the birds chirping and things like that. And I enjoy that. But um, if one of the major ways to change a system is to change the values and the goals of the system, this gets to the heart of it. The actual behavior, as opposed to just talking about it. Mm -hmm. The tangible value of it. Oh, man. Did you see my blog post yesterday? Uh, I did not. I was going on my... I got to share that. Okay. So I was going to my... Um, three nights a week, I would go to these um, the stores that have 15-minute delivery. And so they're kind of ghost, ghost stores. They're, like They don't serve people... You don't walk into the store. Anyway, at the end of the day, they get rid of a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And there's a group of us that go and we volunteer mm -hmm. and we pick, I have my set schedule when I pick it up and take it to a community center where people can get it for free and it would be thrown away. And this is not like the misfit stuff. Okay. This is like perfectly good stuff. And often it's not even past the date, the date, which is a lie, by the way. I don't have to tell you about that. I'm sure. Right. The, it hasn't gone bad. It's just, I think the new stuff has come in and they got to get rid of the old stuff. And it's perfectly fine. I mean, apples are fine for a long, long time. They'll get rid of like dozens and dozens of apples at a time. And by the way, I've been estimating, trying to figure out how much I pick up. And sometimes I get this, I carry this cart behind me, which I think I look like a total dork of this like middle-aged guy carrying a cart <laughs> behind him. Uh, and I'm not like getting dressed up to do this. So I think people are like, I, I think people just ignore me. But in any case, I pick this stuff up and I was asking some people, at the at the receiving end, like how much I've been asking people this lately, like how much do you think this load was? And yesterday we estimated about five hundred dollars retail, hmm. and that was one of the larger loads. But I would guess three to five hundred dollars is pretty common, and I do that three days a week, so that's something like five hundred to thousand dollars a week. Mm -hmm. That's like fifty thousand dollars a year that I'm dropping off. I get thanked when I pick it up because they're like, we don't want to throw this stuff out. Thank you for picking it up, and I get thanked when I drop it off. Mm -hmm. And the rule is the volunteers get to take some of the stuff. And for whatever reason, the people aren't taking the greens and that's what I want the most. So I'm getting like the good stuff while they're taking the more doofy stuff. Mm -hmm. And anyway, I just realized this $50,000 is like, if, now we're talking serious donations here. And of course, I'm not in it for helping the people, although I am. The big reason is I don't want this stuff going to the landfill. Right. And I'm looking for where could the system change because I'm not changing the system. I'm just changing, reducing the waste a bit. Anyway, so I'm walking down 6th Avenue. Mm -hmm. When I walk down on 6th Avenue and turn left onto um, Waverly, this moment is always like that quarter is between the subway station and Washington Square Park. Washington Square Park is where the meth and fentanyl is. And that station is like that. There's this quarter there 
So whenever I turn that corner, could be an encampment, could be a, a few people living with a tent. And they're only there for a day or two before the cops kick them out. Or it could be just huge piles of garbage. Mm. It's never a lovely scene. Sometimes there's not much there. Mm. So I turn the corner and I don't see a whole lot there. And as I'm walking through, I see some guy in the doorway and he's covered. He, he's got the blanket over him. And I look over and I see he's actually injecting in the moment. So I take a picture because normally when I see this, it's in the park and there's lots of people around. And I don't want to be seen taking a picture of someone injecting whatever. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to – whatever dignity has not been stomped out by our culture that leads them to this state. But this – he was covered over – I don't know if it was he or she actually. The person was covered over, so it was anonymous. And I wasn't affecting this one person directly. And so I took a picture and posted it in my blog of you know someone actually – you can see the syringe. And mm-hmm. why am I mentioning this? I then took a picture of a McDonald's as I passed McDonald's a couple blocks later. All right, one's legal, one's not. I don't see, there's not a whole lot of difference from a certain, there is a perspective in which they're very different. Right. But there's also a perspective in which they're very similar. And we don't have to, the more that I see the syringes, the more that I see McDonald's and Starbucks and Exxon and you know, for what for what they are, they're they're pushing craving, and I'm I'm by no means the first person to suggest addiction is slavery. That's been around for centuries. That that idea. Mm-hmm. So, plenty of other people are walking past this person, and they've seen it before, right? If if they're on this corner or in on this block, they've seen that before. Actually, I don't know if they have, but picking up litter puts me in touch with the heart of the the most I, I can't say the most extreme but something like the most visceral part of this addiction that it's very easy washington square park also has lots of people who they'll buy something from some takeout place maybe it's pizza or burger or um bottled water or a cup of coffee in a disposable cup and a lot of that stuff ends up on the ground in Washington Square Park, which otherwise could be very beautiful. And even if it doesn't make it there, it's in the garbage, which ends up, it's not going anywhere. It's not going away. Mm -hmm. And I think that they can just utterly miss that they're living a very similar life to this person who's injecting the meth or fentanyl or whatever. I agree. Um, Carlin did an essay about uh, Americans in a mall. And he said that Americans love to go to the mall because they can satisfy their two big addictions at the same time, shopping and eating. And, uh, you know, he went on to um, explain his thoughts on that. But that's true. And and I think we all have addictions. We, you know, somebody could say, well, you're addicted to trying to pick up trash or you're addicted to not not polluting or you're, you know, anybody. You can look at an addiction. I, I believe I used to drink soda, and I believe I was addicted to soda, and um, I don't drink it anymore. I drink water or iced tea. So, um, you know, we all have can have addictions. We can all transform ourselves to where uh, we uh, wean ourselves off of those addictions. And as you've made clear, 
polluting is an addiction. But to clarify, absolutely polluting activities. Yeah, it's not the pollute. Our addiction. Yeah, not pollution, but yeah, polluting activities. You're right, and and that's what I'm, that's exactly what I'm uh, I'm trying to get at is that um, you can't wish that away. You can't think that away. You have to transform yourself in order to change your behavior so that activity is no longer done. And as I've said before to you and, and to others, you are a great example of someone who can, is continually transforming. And that's the message that all these companies uh, have missed with Dr. Deming is they thought if they did step one, step two, step three, step four, and so forth, they were going to change their uh, culture and they were going to reap in profit. And they had it all wrong. They misunderstood what Deming was saying, is you cannot change behavior if you don't transform yourself. And you won't change companies, you won't change your family, you won't change anything if you don't transform yourself. You have to look at yourself in the mirror in order to start transforming. What have I? What am I doing? And it's no different if you have diabetes or you have uh, an addiction to throwing gum wrappers out your car window or cigarettes or whatever. It doesn't matter. Those types of things can only stop if you look at yourself. And and we're we're brought up in this society to point fingers at others and disregard what we do ourselves. And I think that's that's where you're proving that if you look at yourself and you look at what you do, you can change your activities through transformation. I have a sense of why we don't look at ourselves. I mean, you say culture guides us away from there. Why is that? Mm -hmm. I think I hit. Yeah. Why is it? Well, it's it's because you know Sir Ken Robinson brought this up, and uh, and George Carlin and many other people that I've studied. Um, they blame it on the Industrial Revolution. Now, were we polluting and doing bad things to the environment before the Industrial Revolution? Absolutely, but. What the Industrial Revolution did is change our entire societal structure. It changed how we educate people. It changed how we uh, look at people for employment. It changed how we uh, worked in the industries that, that, caused, that were the benefactor of the Industrial Revolution. It changed our, our structure, our infrastructure of our society. So in education, we were taught to be obedient people. You know, uh, if you're in the Boy Scouts or you're in any kind of organization, the first thing they do is talk about obedience and how that's a, a virtue. It's not a virtue. Questioning should always be a virtue. And, and Carlin said this, your children should be taught to question everything instead of question, instead of telling them not to question. That starts the pathway towards um, uh, how, how we as a society don't think about ourselves anymore because we're taught to be obedient and fall in line and walk behind someone else. 
So, uh, you know, we're not taught to be individuals. And why aren't we? I mean, why? Well, I have to say also. Because it doesn't fit the corporate. It doesn't fit the corporate need. Corporations need people, as Carlin said, who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork, but dumb enough to accept um, all the crappier jobs and low pay and extra hours and all this kind of stuff. It's it's a corporate mentality in America. How many presidents and politicians have you heard that says we need to make Congress, we need to make the Department of Defense, we need to make uh, whatever more like business? No, we don't. We need to get away from that. And the, that corporate mentality is what keeps us down. It, it, that in combination, in my beliefs, with religion, with education, and everything is oriented towards making people obedient. And that stifles creativity and imagination. Imagination is look, if you have a kid daydreaming in class, teachers think that that's bad because they're not paying attention to the lesson. Daydreaming is what is imagination. That's where all creativity starts. You know, Sir Ken Robinson did a lot of research on this kind of thing. And um, the more creativity you have, it's, it's discontinuous. It, it's, uh, it breaks up what has been done before. And that's imagination, creativity, and, and, uh, uh, innovation. Um, and corporations don't want that. If you look at all of the things, whether it's digital cameras or anything else, uh, if Kodak, for instance, person in, in the middle level created digital cameras, well, they were into film. So they said, okay, thanks a lot. Now go do your job. And they put that on the shelf until Apple finally bought it. So that was 20, 25 years because they produced film. They didn't know what business they were in. And, and so we can, we can talk about all these things, but we are, our society has oriented everyone towards not being an individual, but falling in line and being um, part of the collective. And while you have to be part of the collective in order to survive, the collective values, the tribal collective valued individual creation and creativity because that's what helped the tribe go forward and, and change from just surviving to thriving. But these corporations want everybody to just come to work, do your job, go back home and and don't be creative. And it hurts us as a society. If I understand you right, you're saying that we're born with it. One of my favorite quotes is from John Dewey, the education theorist and practitioner who said, why is it that children are always asking questions except in the classroom? <laughs> and Yeah, exactly. I think what you're saying is that we're born with it. it we're in, it's inherent, but it's beaten out of us. Or it is. I don't want to say beaten. I mean, but it's it's um, it's squelched, it's squashed. And by the time, yeah, and that, at, by some point in in our lives, it's so far, it's so far squashed that we just don't practice it anymore, even when it's in our interests too. And I, my quick, I mean, that's what Sir Ken Robinson was all about. 
I mean, well, he was about a lot of things, but his main thrust was the fact that every person is born with creativity, no matter what handicap may also come along with that. You can be creative in your own space, but we're we're pointed in a direction that's linear and and we we start to believe these things that if we go in this direction, we do these things that the rest of our life will be okay. That that's that's non uh, systemic thinking. And he was he always talked about how that was not correct, that everybody has uh, creativity in them. It's whether we're, they're allowed to have that. Little things that sometimes mean a lot. And so in my own case, for instance, when I was a kid and I learned this uh, thing called the Pledge of Allegiance, I questioned, I didn't tell anybody, but I just thought, why do we, if we're Americans, why do we need to pledge an allegiance? What's the point of that? We already have an allegiance. We're Americans. and. So I didn't see a need for that. And then as I became uh, more aware of what went on in the world and in some history, uh, there was allegiance that was required of people back in the 1930s in Germany. Why would you feel it necessary if you're a free society to have somebody pledge allegiance? Wouldn't you, wouldn't the fact that you have a free society mean that you're you're supportive of that society. Why do you need to take a pledge? So it's just those little kinds of things that when you sit down and think about it and start to question why you do it, why are we doing this? As you did, when you think about it, you did a very similar thing with packaging, with being on, uh, you know, using cars and, and uh, flying on airlines and garbage and all that. You started to question everything that you had been taught about what you're supposed to do. And that's the value is questioning. Had you never questioned this, we wouldn't be talking today. To some, I definitely agree that it's been that the, the systems around us, especially the industrial system wants conformity squashes creativity. And, but I, I want to add something more that's deeper and more insidious and within ourselves that I've hit on recently. And it came from a quote by Abraham Lincoln, where he said, the most damaging thing you can do to yourself is to do something that you believe is wrong. The most damaging thing that you can do to yourself is to do something that you believe is wrong. Now, he didn't say to, mm -hmm. to do something that is absolutely wrong. He didn't say something that he believed was wrong. He said something that you yourself believe is wrong. And, you know, he saw a nation go to war. People will lie, cheat, steal. They will tell stories, whatever it takes to avoid facing the internal conflict that happens when they do something, when we do something that we ourselves believe is wrong. And we do not want to question that. We want to suppress and deny. Mm -hmm. In that time, we would be willing to say that someone human was subhuman, that a a civilization that was doing just fine was uncivilized. In today's world, we will say that we are powerless. We would prefer to say what I do doesn't matter than to face up that what I do does matter. And whether I, if I can't change anything about the rest of the world, if I do something that hurts others, I'm powerful to stop myself from hurting someone with any one individual action, even if I can't change the rest of the world. But we say, no, I can't do anything. 
Mm-hmm. We say only governments and corporations can do these things. Whatever mm-hmm. it takes to avoid facing that internal conflict. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lincoln saw that a nation would send would go to war. People would die and kill others rather than face this. And it didn't hit me until recently that it's this internal conflict that we do not want to face. We will do anything to face that we can make a difference. And it's filtered into my thinking about a future, if a world in which no one's polluting. I think that we're going to look back. We're going to look back at ourselves with horror, with both the clarity and the horror that we look back at people who own slaves and people who took forever, who took centuries to stop it. Well, to make it illegal. And we will have this collective. Well, we'll certainly, we'll also certainly have a feeling of why did we take so long? We should have done this a long time earlier. Like we should have done this way earlier. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want to get to. But we're, we're going to, oh my God, I knew all along that I didn't have to do those things, but I wouldn't face it because I didn't want to look at the consequences of, of my, of my choices. So this is, mm-hmm. yes, th- this reinforces what you were saying earlier. Yes, we want to change culture. We want to change this corporate mentality. We want to restore creativity. We also have to go inside ourselves and root this out and realize what is this internal conflict? Because when I was a kid growing up, flying, in some sense, we knew we knew that there was pollution coming out the back of the jet, but it was generally good. I don't remember as a kid people saying that there was a problem with flying. Now, people can deny it all they want, but I, I think everyone knows the fuel doesn't make itself. We have to kick people off their lands and destroy those lands and you know extirpate these people, uh, not to mention wildlife. Mm-hmm. And but we and we say, oh, to be a global citizen and to find other cultures and educate and learn, we have to do this, which is not the, that's a lie. That's a total lie. Mm-hmm. And we want to fly. We know it's hurting others, and we don't want to face that. And Abraham Lincoln nailed it. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and we're all, you know, as I said, as a flight instructor, I was flying every day, not in a jet, in a propeller airplane, but, um, you know, it caused pollution. And I never thought about it at all. Never crossed my mind. Uh, I enjoyed flying. So um, there are things that when we become aware of it, you you can't be aware of everything at once but as you become aware of it then you have a choice to transform yourself and to uh, cut down on the destructive behaviors that are there uh, much of it paul shepherd in his book uh, nature and madness talks about the how tribal societies before agriculture and religion were um mature they produced mature adult people and we don't have that anymore. And, and I include myself. Um, in that book, he said, the more fearful thing about a world being run by children, more fearful than that might be a world run by childish adults. And um, if you look at our politics today, I think you could certainly say that's true. If you look at our um, lack of wanting to uh, uh, 
believe in climate change or the fact that we could affect the planet negatively, um, I think that that's certainly true. The world is run by childish adults. And again, when you go back to education and religion and all that stuff and you add that, you look at it as a system, that's what we produce is immature people. And so if you produce immature people, what kind of leadership do you think you're going to have? Immature leadership. So when you start to question the way things have always been done, like you have, then you start to head toward a personal maturity, which means then that as a leader, you can be a mature leader. And there's different uh, stages of that. You're always growing. We're always trying to improve ourselves. But um, I think recognition that we are in that place of immaturity as a society and we let greed and we let fear and um, we let immaturity rule our lives. And until we change ourselves, we're not going to change the outcome much. And that's that's the difference in chasing after um, a problem result or chasing after the problem. If this immaturity is, I believe it's it's reinforced by our not wanting to reflect. We don't want to feel that internal conflict. We want to keep away. How can we get people to want to face that internal conflict? Well, what it requires is a change of all society. It's a change of how we raise children. It's a change of how we educate ourselves. It's a change of how we conduct ourselves um, as a tribe or as a society. It's a change of our beliefs. Um, well, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of on the individual level. If I'm talking to one on one to someone, what have you done? How have you changed yourself? What decisions? What did you look at? And and what decisions did you make? And why? Why did you start looking at this stuff? Why did you stop uh, throwing away garbage? Why did you? I mean. Why did you cut down on, on the amount of garbage you generate? Why did you try to get off of the grid? Why did you do that? And I think when you you know why you did, and when you articulate why, then other people will say, that's a pretty good idea. I think I can do that. Because that's what that's how you're leading. You're saying you're trying to tell show people why and tell people why you're doing it. And it's not it's as you said. It's it picking up garbage out of Washington Park or Washington Square Park is not going to stop the garbage being put down, but it's going to affect something. It's going to make you feel better. It's going to maybe if somebody sees you picking up, maybe it might inspire someone else to pick something else up, and and so that's leadership. Well, you, you, since you asked me, I'm I'm now thinking of like what got me and. <laughs> I am mindful that the someone I think it was one of the physicists Niels Bohr one of them I think said whenever you discover great truth or great wisdom of life when you actually say it it's a, it sounds trivial that's one of the signs because they've all mm -hmm. been discovered before when you have the epiphany and realize it yourself so I think of 
recognizing that I was hurting people. Now, that's not the answer yet. But that, you know, what I did affected others. And it was a matter of alleviating suffering versus causing suffering. I was causing suffering and I wanted to alleviate it. I, this sounds Buddhist to me, but lots of traditions have that. And, and so what's, the word for that is compassion. That I'm acting on a compassion that I feel for the fact that they're nameless and faceless to me. I don't know, you know, who's living in wherever, you know, that's affected by the choices that I make because it's billions of people and I don't know all of them yet, not on all of them. And how can I hurt them? I don't want them hurting me. And, and to that extent, it's due unto others. It's the golden rule. Since you asked, I had to, you know, I was reflecting and, and if I meditate longer, I'll come up with maybe mm -hmm. other answers. But that certainly feels like the heart of it. And so when people say, but... Mm -hmm you're not going to be able to fix all the world's problems in however many words that they say it. What does that have to do with this thing that I'm doing right here, right now that could affect someone that will affect someone or not to do that thing. And then that's why I would act personally. The reason I choose to lead others was that when I acted on it, I found that life, it improved my life in ways I've described in many, many other places. But, you know, avoiding packaged food didn't lead to taking more time and more money. It didn't lead to less delicious. It led to more time and money, more delicious. And that was absent from, you know, there's no, I, I was just not aware of anyone saying this is a positive result. You're going to like the results. It was always, we have to. Mm -hmm. I think you've heard me say that before. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when, Leaders, a lot of times, I think leaders don't set out to specifically lead others. Leaders set out to try to address a situation, whatever that situation might be. And other people observe that, say, that's a great idea. I think I'm going to go along with that. And so that you might end up leading others, but I don't think your initial intent what you did, I don't believe that um, my my feeling is that you didn't start out trying to uh, lead others. You tried to transform yourself. And as you did that, others started to observe you and, and listen to what your ideas were. And, and you became you were a leader to them because you were telling them you were showing them why you were doing something. Simon Sinek uh, talked about Martin Luther King and and. Uh, March on Washington and said in, you know, in 1963, how did hundreds of thousands of people know to arrive at a certain time on a certain day in, in Washington, on the mall in Washington, uh, when there was no internet, there was no, um, there were no smartphones and things like that. How did they know to do that? Well, they heard his message. He was telling them why he wanted to change things and they didn't and according to uh, Simon, they didn't show up at the mall for for Martin Luther King. They showed up for themselves because they found what they believed was in concert with why he was doing what he was doing. And so that's what I'm saying is you when you tell and show people why you're doing something. 
not everybody's going to follow, but some people will want to follow your lead. But I don't feel that you started out just, I want to lead some people, so I think I'm going to work on the environment. You worked on the environment because that was a situation that needed to be worked on. And and you took the lead to do that. But it wasn't because one person or a hundred people or a thousand people were going to follow you. You did it because of the situation. That's why I say leadership is situational. And it, and it's not um it's not because people um are just standing around waiting for somebody to come by and give them a good thought. I did try leading at the beginning very ineffectively. I mean, I, <laughs> okay. After so, avoiding pack. No, I mean, the very beginning was me just experimenting on my own. Mm -hmm. Then when I thought, Oh, people just need to get the experience. And once they experience it, they're going to like it too. Mm -hmm. So this was very ineffective because it was cajoling and coercing and convincing and seeking compliance mm -hmm. of trying to get people to do what I did, knowing that if they did, they'd be like, Oh, now I want to do it more. Mm -hmm. And it, well, I was just lecturing at them and their response was, we are, we know, we know that already. Tell the tell them over there. So these people who pollute like crazy are like they pollute more. Mm -hmm. But things are changing a lot. That things are. I mean, I'm constantly. You know, it's going through this minefield, this emotional minefield of leading people to realize that they have they're going to want to change, that they're going to like the change, but they don't want to face that. And so they put up all this resistance and I've hit like every mine that I can. So that the next time through, I make it a little bit farther, a little bit farther, a little bit farther. Mm -hmm. the, this, this point about Abraham Lincoln, his quote is really meaningful to me. And I think it really, like people really do not want to face their own. I'm not saying they're doing anything wrong. I Actually, one of the weird weird being a euphemism side effects of this view is that realizing how many people, uh, if you ask someone is slavery good or bad or good or evil, I think maybe some people might say, oh, there's no such definition or something, but people are going to say, if if anything was evil, slavery was evil, right? This is like one of the most clear cut things. Everyone is like agrees on that. Not at the time they didn't. Half the nation and, and before that, most of the world believed slavery was normal and often good. Right. And it's as how many people today, what, listeners of my voice right this second, if they actually lived in 1800, whether that was England or South Carolina or, you know, New York would have supported slavery. A lot of people would have been very more than fine with it. And thought it considered it good. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know that's that's our lack of maturity. That's an example of our lack of maturity, is that we we like to think that these people are all one way, all the time. Lincoln was a great president, but he wasn't a great person all the time. He didn't start out thinking slavery was bad. He actually advocated for moving slaves, freeing them from plantations, but moving them out of the country to Africa. So he only, he changed over the course of the war to become more of focused on ending slavery and, and giving 
people who were slaves rights to live in America. He didn't start out that way. So, uh, you know, there are some, no one is perfect. And for us to believe that George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or whoever you want to say, doesn't matter, Albert Einstein was great their whole life, that's inaccurate. No one is that way. I've done things in the past that I'm not happy about. And if I had a chance to do them over, I wouldn't do what I did. Everyone has that. Maturity is the ability to recognize that and to change your behavior. And what the most misunderstood thing about uh, Dr. W. Edwards Deming's teachings is when he said you have to continually improve, what they miss is what he actually intended. And I think what he intended was you have to continually transform. Because if you don't transform, if you don't change what you're doing, you're not transforming. And there's that old saying that if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got. It's that's you can't you can't dispute that. That's that's uh, a prime example of not transforming. And yet people feel safe when they don't have to change things. And that's change is actually stable. If you don't change, you become unstable. And whatever you do, whether you're a company or an individual or whatever, if you don't think of a ball team, any kind of ball team, a hockey team, basketball team, doesn't matter. If they don't change, they're either going to win every championship or they're going to lose every game if they don't change. So change is more akin to stability than not changing. Not changing is not stable. It's unstable. Well, personal transformation as essential to personal improvement feels like a good place to end this conversation okay. because I know you're going to come back because <laughs> either you'll see the wolf or at some point it'll take a, you'll, you'll, something inside you'll say, I got to report Josh, back to Josh about yeah. the journey, uh, you know, the, the attempt so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe, is that a good place to end for you? Anything else? Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, Donald Robinson, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Josh. I appreciate your time. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.